Do you remember the children's story? You may have to think back. Do you remember the fable called The Emperor's New Clothes? Anybody remember this one? Uh, Hans Christian Andersen fable. Uh, if you're not familiar, it's a pretty simple old legend. The, uh, these two um, uh, 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 swindlers, crooks, arrive in town, and they've got this scam they run, and it is that they claim they are tailors from a far-off place, and they can design, they can make the finest suit of clothes that anyone has ever seen. And so they go straight to the capital city, they go straight to the emperor, and they convince this guy, we will make for you this suit of clothes. And our suit of clothes is magical, and here's how it works. No one who is foolish or incompetent can even see the clothes. They appear invisible to anyone who's a fool, anyone who's naive, anyone who's incompetent, who lacks taste. They won't even be able to see it. And so they stretch out this massive loom and they begin going to work on what is obviously a, a scam. It's made up. It's invisible. And the emperor is so excited, but he doesn't want to look at it. So he sends in his officials, these high-ranking officials. And they go in and there they're beholding the progress. How's it coming? And they, with great fanfare, show the clothes. Well, the officials, look, they don't see anything, but they don't want to be seen as foolish or incompetent. So uh, uh, they report back to the king, they're glorious. Uh, they're grand. You're going to love them. They're great, right? Well, this keeps going on until finally the emperor himself beholds what are to be his new suit of clothes. But of all people, the emperor doesn't want to look foolish. And so he can't see anything, but he um, insists that Yes, they're perfect. And so with great fanfare, he pretends to put on these clothes and parades through the entire city. Well, now all the crowds are seeing this emperor in just his underwear, but nobody wants to say anything. They don't want to look foolish. Finally, it is a little child that stands up at the parade, that stands up in the crowd and says what is so glaringly obvious. It takes a little kid who's not worried about their reputation. They're not worried about whether or not they look foolish or ignorant. And the little kid stands up and says, he ain't got no clothes on, right? What I love about Easter is that it seems to me Easter is the day of the year. Easter is that day when all the world seems to me to be in total denial about one really big problem. The whole world, it sure seems like to me, is in denial about death. That death is coming for all of us. Face death at the end, of the, 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 that's coming, and nobody's talking about this. Nobody's talking about the fact that, like, for all of us, we're going to face death. Easter is like that little child in the parade that can stand up and say, uh, we need to talk about this. We need to talk about death. I'm sure that little kid looked around at some point and was like, am I the only one seeing this? Am I the only one seeing this? Am I the only one? That kid at some point feels like, maybe I'm the only one, but eventually just says it. That's what Easter is. Easter is an acknowledgement that Whatever you say, the coming at the end of life, there's death. We got to talk about that. I, um, uh, you know, don't want to be seen as, uh, I guess, foolish, or nobody wants us to be seen as incompetent. But if this life is all there is, and then we die and fade into nothingness, 
if that's it, if it's lights out and we just sort of, that's the end of the existence. There's no meaning. Like, I'm not okay with that. I mean, like, if that's all there is after this life, it's just completely, you're just gone. You don't exist forever. Like, I'm scared of that. Like, I'm, I'm not afraid to, I'm not ashamed to tell you that. Like, I'm not okay about that. And at some point, I want to look around and be like, am I the only one who notices this? That at the end of this life, we're going we're gonna to die? If that's all there is? Um, uh, I, I read a statistic recently. I was, a couple weeks ago, I read in a magazine. I thought it was fascinating. According to this statistic, it said that one out of every one people will die. In their lifetime, actually. <laughs> so if that's the case, if this is coming for all of us, now, what do you do if, if you don't believe that there's an afterlife or that it's some sort of impersonal, you know, afterlife? What, what, do, you, what do you make of that? Those who do not believe in God, you know, I always try to make some, um, I, I, I always try to be fair to those that are skeptical or, or that see things a little different. Um, you know, those that would say, well, when you die, you just sort of, you won't exist. That, that, that's all there is. They would say something like this. Look, there's nothing to fear because you won't feel anything. After you die, it'll just be lights out. And so there's, there's, there's nothing to fear. It'll be nothing at all. How is that comforting, you know? Or to those who would say, well, or those who are part of like Eastern religions who would say, well, you won't be you. You'll just sort of be absorbed into the, you know, the universal soul. You'll be just sort of part of the all soul. You won't have any, it won't be personally you. You'll just sort of be reincarnated or you'll be in the, the you know, part of the circle of life. I think eventually you become Simba or something like that. I'm not sure, you know. But it's somehow you'll be absorbed. The afterlife is not personal and you'll be separated from everyone you know and love, but don't worry. Your soul will go on. Don't worry? Don't worry? How is that come? Like, am I the only one that is not at all, not comforted by that, but more terrified than ever? So now, not only am I afraid to look ahead at death, but the power of death has a fear that if that's what's coming, that there's just nothing after, you know, when we die, not only does it spoil that, but it spoils every day until that. How can I enjoy any day knowing that death is the end? That's it. I, look, I... Um, so to be fair, I don't know if this is really how this works. Everything I know about the criminal justice system comes from Matlock. Uh, but according to Matlock, like the way it works is when somebody's on death row and they're about to be executed the next day, they're given a last meal. And they can have anything they want. And that always struck me as like, that's insane. That's crazy. Like, now listen, you're going to be executed tomorrow, so for your last meal, you can have anything you want. Pick out something you'll really enjoy. Who could enjoy? I mean, how good would a meal have to be? For, like, how could you possibly enjoy that meal, knowing that tomorrow was your death? Um, an example, a little closer to home, uh, before Jack and I were married, we dated, we were, uh, we were a long-distance relationship. I don't know if you've ever been in a long-distance relationship, um, but uh, 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 we'd have these long weekends together, and, and like, like, like separated by, you know, far enough you couldn't even drive. You had to fly. So the, the flight would land on like Friday afternoon, and even as we're going, I mean, it'd be, oh, it's awesome, and yeah, it's great. And like in the cab ride from the airport, like to the restaurant, we're so excited. Already there's like sadness in Jackie's face. And I'm like, oh, come on. You know, we just started this great weekend. We're going to have this great time together. And it's awesome. But already there's this gloom that hangs over. Why? And I'd ask her, and she'd say, because I know I'll, no matter how great this is, I got to go back Sunday. 
And like, the, you know, the clock's ticking every minute. It's like looming this doom over us that this is all going to come to an end. You see that? By knowing this all had to end, even the enjoyable times were robbed of some of their joy. <laughs> Maybe just one more. If you tell your child, right? Say your kid gets in trouble. And you tell that kid, you are in big trouble, mister. Wait until your father gets home. When your father is going to be home from work in a half hour, when he gets home in 30 minutes, judgment is coming. So you run along now, little boy, and you enjoy the next 30 minutes because when that's over, judgment's coming. What kid is going to be like, oh, yeah, I can enjoy this next half hour? <laughs> By the way, if, if you have a kid that's like, great, I can totally compartmentalize that, no problem. He's a sociopath. You understand? <laughs> You got, you got bigger problems at that point. If you know that judgment's coming, if you know that death is the end, not only are you scared to die, but now you can't even enjoy each day. Like tomorrow morning at work, with tomorrow morning when somebody comes up to you, good morning, what makes it good? Ask them, what makes it good? If there is nothing coming in the afterlife, or at least nothing that's personal, or nothing that's assured, or nothing that's certain, if we're just gonna be part of the nebulous soul of the universe, if we're gonna be absorbed in the circle of life, if when they throw that dirt over our body, that's the end. What makes it a good morning? Because if it, it's not a good morning, because a morning means it's a new day, and a new day means tick, 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 one day closer to death. If you say all that, by the way, no coworker will ever wish you good morning again. That will be the end of that. But you see my point. What makes it a good morning? What gives life any meaning? If the human race has nothing to look forward to. Well, the only thing, the only way I can figure is if you don't... I, and I'll just say this as bluntly as I can. If you say, no, 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 not me. I stare blankly into the abyss. I know that after we die, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in any of this stuff. That's it. It's over. And I have nothing to fear. So live, laugh, love. You know, enjoy, enjoy life. Do all you can now and enjoy it and take each day. And that makes each day precious and each day a gift. It's as blunt as I can say it. I'm sorry. I don't believe you. I don't believe you. If you say that I can look into the future and be separated from everyone that I know and love and all my consciousness will come to an end forever and ever and ever and ever and ever for all eternity, I'm sorry I don't believe you. And that's why I think, that's why the only way to live forward with no hope of what's coming after we die, the only way to move forward in life would be to get to get drunk on distractions and denial. To get drunk on distractions and denial. Now when I say get drunk, I don't mean literally drunk, though I, I suppose that is one way of blocking out the world and being in denial. What I mean though is getting drunk on distractions. The next project, the next gadget, the next toy, right? The next song, the next meal, the next pleasure, the next relationship, the next conquest, whatever it is, let's keep the party going. Why? Because if there's silence, and, I have to, and if I have to actually stop and think for a minute, then I'll think about reality. I'll think about death. And that's too much. So let's live in denial. Let's live in being drunk on distractions and denial. It's the only way to get through. Because I'm sorry. If I know that at the end of all this, that's it, lights out. I'm, forgive me for not being able to live, laugh, love today. Forgive me for not being able to enjoy every single day. That we are going to die is the problem, not just for like our culture or our society, that is the problem for human beings. And Easter is that 
moment to stand up and say, wait a minute, we got to talk about this. Let's get real for a second. If we're going to die, how is this not the headline of everything? And Easter, the Easter message is bold enough to say it is the headline of everything. The solution is the Christian headline of everything. It's square in the midst of death that we see the, those first disciples, really the women in Luke chapter 24. Would you turn there to Luke chapter 24, verse 1? Turn in your Bibles or turn on your Bibles. The verses will also be up here on the screen. I'll give you a little context while you're turning there. Jesus has been crucified. The verses just before this, in the end of Luke chapter 23, they tell about the crucifixion, and then they, they talk about how these, these women uh, 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 watched as Joseph of Arimathea was... Uh, 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 He took Jesus' body down, and Joseph, along with the help of his friend Nicodemus, Joey and Nicky, they did this hurry-up, slapdash job of anointing the body, and they put him quickly in Joseph's tomb. Why was it so hurried? Why was it so rushed? Why didn't they do a proper job of anointing the body? And the answer is because Sabbath was coming. Friday night, he was crucified on Good Friday, starting Friday night till the following, what we would call Saturday evening, that's the Jewish Sabbath. You weren't allowed to do any work, no one was going to be in the streets, and so they had to hurry up, get him in the tomb, and then that night they go back, no doubt, it was a sleepless night, Friday night, they're thinking about it on Saturday, they're not allowed to do any work, but late, if they had any time Friday night, and certainly from Saturday all through the night, these women are preparing these burial spices, these, these ointments, tossing and turning. Now, we have to look at it from their perspective, from their perspective. It's easy for those of us who've celebrated Easter to look back and go, oh, come on, you know, Jesus is alive. Why were the disciples so scared? The, the apostles, the apostles, where were they? They were scared to death. They were in hiding. They were locked in an upper room, it says, for fear of the Jews. Why? Well, because the, the, the Jewish chief priests that had, had Jesus executed, they knew it was only a matter of time. They came for Jesus, going to come for us. It's only a matter of time. They're going to find us. And so they're locked in an upper room. They can't just leave on Saturday. That would be obvious. The streets are quiet, and here's this band of people trying to leave. So they think, maybe if we can wait till Sunday, maybe we can slip out with the crowd, or maybe after Passover week, we can make our way back to Galilee and like go into witness protection or something, and maybe they won't find us there and go back to some sort of semblance there of order. They're brokenhearted. I mean, Jesus was the one who believed in us. He said he was a king. He can't be a king. Messiah was never supposed to die. And Obviously, on this Roman cross, Messiah died. So they're confused. They're brokenhearted. Why am I making such a big deal of this? I want you to see that it wasn't Easter Sunday for them. They weren't expecting a resurrection. The disciples weren't up in the upper room going, oh, man, I, you know, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. No, no, no. They're like, it's Friday, and the only miracle we can hope for is if we get out of this city alive. That's the only Easter miracle they're hoping for. At no point were the disciples looking around at each other on, it wasn't Easter to them. It was the darkest day in the history of the gloom of the universe day or something. There's no Hallmark card for that. The Canadian holiday, I think. The point is they're not looking around going, hey guys, I had this crazy thought. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I know we're all scared for our life and I know that at any minute, the uh, Romans, along with the Jewish chief priests, may bust into this locked room. They may kick the door down. They may arrest us all and crucify us all. But here's what I'm thinking. Tomorrow morning, Sunday morning, yeah? Let's all dress up in pastel-colored togas, okay? 
and we'll hide a bunch of eggs, right? And then we'll all go look for these eggs and we'll celebrate the fact that you, that's not what they're thinking. If you say, well, I'm skeptical of the resurrection. The apostles were more skeptical than you were. They weren't expecting a resurrection. And so verse one, on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. Who's the they? The apostles, remember, the, the men are locked in the upper room. They're scared to death. It was the women. It was the women who looked around early on Sunday morning and said, well, girls, if something's going to get done around here, it's going to have to be us. Right? And may I submit to you that in 2,000 years of church history, absolutely nothing has changed, by the way. It's those women taking the spices Obviously, it's the least they could do for their Lord. At least honor his memory. You know, honor his body. The way you would work they, back then, they didn't have the embalming techniques that we have today. And so, um, uh, really, w- w- what they tried to do with the spices, spikenard and myrrh and aloe, they were so pungent. The idea is you would just cover over the stench of a dead body with the powerful smell of the perfume. And you would wait until that corpse decomposed and decayed. And the perfume was meant to mask that smell. You were meant to perfume over the stench of death until it was eventually nothing left but the bones. They would collect the bones and put them in a bone box, an ossuary, and set those aside to rest. And finally laid to rest. These spices were very expensive. We learn from uh, the Gospel of John that one jar of this spikenard perfume, one jar of this burial ointment was worth a year's wages. So there's no telling. They could have spent thousands of dollars on this perfume or, or tens of thousands of dollars, maybe $100,000 on this perfume. And to be fair, you'd say, well, that's such a waste of money. But remember, they didn't think it was Easter. From their perspective, it's not Easter. They're just going to anoint the body of this man that they cared for and this beloved founder, covering a corpse with the best they got, putting perfume on a corpse. May I suggest uh, that is a perfect picture of man-made religion, trying to cover the stench of death with enough perfume. Doing your best to honor a corpse. That's man-made religion. If, If you follow a religion that has a founder who's still in the grave, your whole life is just trying to do the best you can to anoint this corpse, to honor the memory of this founder doing the best you can to honor a corpse. Mark's gospel tells us what they talked about on the way to that tomb. Their main concern, how they're going to roll away the stone. Some scholars say the stone weighed 1,500 pounds. So as they're going, they're talking about how are we going to roll away 1,500 pound stone? Salome, you got any plans? Joanna, I heard you've been doing CrossFit. 1,500 pounds, right? Mary, what about you? Second Mary, what about you? Third, and possibly, there's so many Marys. Uh, Mary, what about you, right? Anybody got any ideas? They're worried about how to roll away that stone. Now, now stay with me. Um, There is a waste of money because investing in death is always a waste of money. They're, they're, They're trying to cover over the stench of a corpse. That's what religious legalism will get you, just trying to cover the stench of a corpse with your best efforts. But there's also this waste of worry. Why? Because verse 2 says, and when they, when they got there, what did they find? They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. They've been worried for no reason. Um, let me ask you something. Have you ever had the experience in life where you were so anxious over something? 
you were so worried about something, and it's like you want, if it were possible, you want to go back to your old self and be like, hey, yo, I'm from the future. You are so worried about this. If you only knew this is all going to work out, it's going to be okay. Have you ever had that experience? That there's something you were agonizing over that you look back now and you're like, why did I worry so much about that? It was all going to work out in the end. You ever had that experience? Uh, Can I suggest to you that these women, if they could go back, what they were worried about was not at all what they should have worried about. And I'd like to maybe offer this to you. Um, In light of the empty tomb, whatever it is that you're worried about, hundred years from now, a million years from now, you're going to go back and be like, hey, if Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, it's all going to work out. It's all going to be okay. You can preach yourself that message, misplaced worry. They thought the biggest miracle would be how they were going to roll that stone away. They didn't realize it's not about what they, they were coming to anoint the body. They were going to do a good deed for the Lord. They didn't realize Christianity is not about you doing a good deed for God. It's about a God who's way ahead of you, a God who has done something for us and our salvation. But they went in, verse 3. And when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Again, they still don't think it's Easter. They just know that, wait a minute, the body is not here. That's strange. The stone's been rolled away. So that's one big mystery. And then they go in, and where's the body of the Lord Jesus? Verse 4, while they were, uh, this is the understatement of the century. While they were perplexed (laughs) about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. Yes, that's a good word. When you're in the creepy shadows of the early morning and you're going around a cemetery and you expect to find something dead, instead you see two angels in clothes like lightning. That is most perplexing. <laughs> Love that. They're perplexed. Now, these two angels, the, the dazzling apparel refers back to something Luke said at the Mount of Transfiguration. He said that uh, they had clothes like lightning to show us these are, these are people who've been in the presence of God and that blinding light, these two angels. It's interesting. Um, only Luke mentions the two angels. All the other gospels only mention the one angel, the one who spoke. Uh, but Luke tells us there are two. Uh, two angels got roles in this drama, but only one got a speaking part. So the other one is there, and Luke wants you to know there is uh, a second angel there. And they see this angel. They're not, they're, not, they're not thinking, I am most perplexed. They're scared to death. Verse 5, and as they were frightened... And bowed their faces to the ground, right? They're scared to death. When you're expecting to see something dead, and instead you see something very much living, in the case of these two angels, yes, that is perplexing. And they're frightened, and they bow to the ground. And then the angel says, what is, I think, my, my second favorite scripture verse in the Bible? I would have to say that uh, this would be my second favorite all-time scripture verse. It's when the angels, who the women are perplexed to see the angels, but the angels are just as perplexed, I think, to see the women, and who ask, why do you seek the living among the dead? I love that. Why do you seek the living among the dead? What are you doing here? You know, 2,000 years have passed, and that is still a probing and very insightful question. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Now let me talk personally to some of you here. Um, some, some of you here, I, I know this is the case. Uh, 
you are guilty of this little mild rebuke that the angels gave the women. This, this is kind of your story right now. You are seeking the living among the dead. What do I mean by that? Um, some of you who are here, I know, I know you feel lost. You feel desperate. You feel hopeless. And I know in your heart of hearts you want to connect to God. You want the good life. But you got these relationships that are imploding around you. You got all this anxiety. You got all this stuff going on. All these problems. And you're looking for real life. Oh, but I'm telling you, you're never going to find real life among the dead. You're looking for Jesus in a cemetery, a place of the dead. Why do you seek the living among the dead? What do I mean specifically? You're not going to find life among the dead ways of the world. Sin. First John calls it the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh. And all this worldliness. You're not going to find true life there. That stuff's dead. Why do you seek the living among the dead? You're not going to find it at the end of a bottle. You're not going to find it at the end of a, a bottle of pills. You're not going to find what you're looking for. You're, that's just seeking the living among the dead. You're not going to find it if I get the next pleasure, if I, if I, if I achieve the next level in my career, if I can, you know, if I can get the next uh, distraction. No, 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 that stuff's dead. You're not going to find it. Why do you seek the living among the dead? But there's another group that you're, you're just as desperate and you're just as lost, and this is scary, but you call yourself a Christian? Oh, and th th this is tough. This, this breaks everybody's heart. You, you say, yeah, I, um, I don't really have any desire for God. I don't really have much belief in God. But, you know, I, I prayed a prayer. I think I was at youth camp. And then, like, I did all the stuff. I rededicated my life every year at Centrifuge. Uh, they gave me a medal, um, uh, most, most baptisms. You know, I, like, you know, I did all that stuff. Again, I don't, I don't, really, I don't really care about God. I don't care about this stuff. But, but uh, uh, I, you know, I just, I'm sort of floating out there. Maybe there's hope for me. No, no, no. You're seeking the living among the dead. You're seeking the living Lord among a dead faith. Why do I call it a dead faith? J the book of James says, faith without works is dead. Uh, there's no other way to put it. It, 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 it it's, it's not real. It's not a real faith. It's certainly not a saving faith. And sometimes, you know, you're wondering why you feel so lost and why do you feel so desperate? You're, you're living life um, without being all in on Jesus. There's a, you got to hear me on this, that, I'm not mad at you. I'm not angry at you. I love you. And I want you to stop seeking the living among the dead. A dead faith won't get you there. There's a line in an Avet Brothers song. I think he had like broken up with his girlfriend and was gonna move to Brooklyn and um, from North Carolina or something. And he talks about that. And the line goes like this. One foot in and one foot back. It don't pay to live like that. Some of you are living sort of one foot in with faith and one foot back. I'm here to tell you, it don't pay to live like that. That's a dead faith. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Well, you're miserable. If, if, you're, if you're one foot in, one foot back, you're miserable and you need a breakthrough. You're going to get tired of that. And so my message to you today is to to get saved, to go all in, to stop seeking the living among the dead, but to realize, like, wait a minute, he's a living Lord. That's why I feel him. You know, we're singing these praise songs. You're hearing the word of God. Listen, Jesus Christ died for you on the cross. He died in your place. On the third day, he rose from the dead, and he offers life to you. 
Why do you seek the living among the dead? Seek him. Get saved today. I, I, don't, I don't know whether you call it, you know, ask Jesus into your heart or be born again or make Jesus your personal Lord and Savior. I don't care what you call it. I just want you to do it to be saved. And then my favorite verse of Scripture. So we have the, uh, the second favorite verse of Scripture is uh, uh, why do you seek the living among the dead? But then my favorite all-time verse of Scripture, it has to be, when the angels look at the woman, the angels look at the women and say, this is it, this is it to me, and say in verse 6, <clears throat> He is not here. There you have it. Pastor Tom's favorite Bible verse. He is not here. (laughs) Don't you love that? I think I like it so much because the angels don't specify where exactly Jesus is. He's just not here. Yes, it seems we have a deity who is on the loose. There's an APB out for Jesus. (laughs) He's just not here. Why, he could be anywhere. He's risen from the dead, and the one place you're not going to find him is in a tomb. And sure enough, he's just sort of on the loose in his new glorified body. He's just a God out there on the loose. In a few hours, he's going to appear to Mary, right? Who, I mean, he's just sort of having fun. Tell me, where did they put the body of Jesus? I don't know. Mary. Ah! You remember this? Right? Goes right through the locked door of the upper room in John 20 or 21. In the end of John, he goes through the locked door, right? He's, he walks with the guys to Emmaus. He's just sort of appearing everywhere appears again to the apostles, appears by the seashore. He's just a God who's on the loose. Why? He is not here. Those four simple words delineate. Those four words mark off Christianity from every other religion on the planet. We don't have some dead founder. We're not, we're not honoring the memory of some dead founder. We have a living Lord who's on the loose. Now, do you still believe that, that we have a God who's on the loose? You believe that? Because see, if you, you know, it's easy to get discouraged. People say, well, you know, we got this secular, secular uh, nation and, and religious freedom and you can't talk about Jesus and you can't talk about Jesus in the public schools. Public schools are, are closed to the message of the gospel. And then what about international missions? You got countries where they, 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 they're closed countries. They're closed to the gospel and you can't get missionaries in there. They'll stop you at the border. Well, that may be true, but let me ask you, what is a closed country going to do against a living Lord on the loose? Hmm? How are you going to stop him? You can stop the message of a dead founder, but what are you going to do with a living Lord on the loose? A closed country, a locked door. Well, I've been praying for my cousin, and he, doesn't, he seems closed to the gospel. Or, you know, I, my grandson doesn't seem to want anything to do with God. Now, you know, what about a closed heart? Closed country, closed to the gospel, closed heart, locked door. What is that to a Jesus on the loose? You can't stop him. He's a deity on the loose. He is not here the angel says, but has risen. The emphasis here is on the passive, that God has, he has been raised. God raised him from the dead. I, uh, I don't know why it didn't dawn on me until this week. Some of you have known this for years. You've thought about this. Well, I'm just playing catch up. I didn't think about it till this week, but the stone being rolled away. Uh, the, you know, he's not here. Look, see for yourself. Matthew and Mark say, come see the place where he was. But what about the stone being rolled away? I don't know why it never dawned on me. Why was the stone rolled away? I guess, my, you know, my whole life I've been like, the stone was rolled away. Woohoo! The stone was rolled away, and Jesus burst forth, you know, out of the tomb as if the stone was rolled away to let Jesus out. But why would you have to roll away a stone to let the king of the universe out? He doesn't need any help with the whole stone thing. 
He, we, he walked through doors, remember? He's got a physical body, a glorified body, but it's somehow like semi-permeable. And it can like go through solid objects because he walks through doors, which proves he could have walked right through the tomb. That's no problem. It's not like Jesus was in the tomb going, oh, I hope this angel hurries up and gets here so I can get out of here, right? I need a little help. I need a little assistance. I was able to come back from the dead, but I need help from an angel rolling away the stone. No, the stone was not rolled away to let Jesus out. The stone was rolled away to let the witnesses in. Because every time God does a resurrection, there ought to be a witness. Is there a witness in here? Any witnesses in here? Did God do something in your life where you were dead in your sins and trespasses and he made you alive again? Every time he does a resurrection, there's a witness. That's why the stone is rolled away. And in Matthew and Mark's gospel, right, it says that not, it adds a little detail. I think it's Matthew adds a little detail I love. It says the angel rolled away the stone and sat on it. Leave it to an old Baptist preacher named Charles Spurgeon to say, the angel rolled away the stone and sat on it as if to say to death and hell, roll it back if you can. <laughs> Leave it to Spurgeon to look for a fight <laughs> with the devil in hell against that angel. But I love that. I think he's absolutely right. The angel sat on it as if to say to hell, come at me, bro. What are you going to do? You're going to roll it back? This is, what, this is the work of God and that tomb is going to stay rolled open. Why? Because there's going to be witnesses for years and years until I come. And the witnessing will not stop. That he's alive, he's on the loose. Ergo, he is not here. Oh, but he has risen. Now, I want to close by just briefly looking, so far we've looked at the women's perspective um, but I want to go back and I want just, just for a moment to think about this from the angel's perspective. Uh, from the angel's perspective. Because the women are all perplexed and blown away like, you know, what, what's going on? I think the angels were a little perplexed too. Because, and this is my theory, the angels have, they've, they've noticed something. When God says something, he does it. And so these humans must do things that look absolutely ridiculous to the angels. Just like the women are like, what? You know, what's going on here? The angels have to be thinking, what's going on here? Jesus said he was going to be handed over, he was going to be crucified, and on the third day he was going to rise again from the dead. If Jesus said that, it's going to happen. And so I imagine the angels who've been told, I mean, the angels were thrilled. When they got the call from their agent that was like, yo, you booked a part. I mean, the other, one of you won't get to speak, but it's going to be great. You're going to get to be there at the rolling away of the stone. The announcement, you have been chosen. You two of God's messengers, you angels, have been chosen to be there for the rolling away of the stone. You know, he is not here. He is right. That's going to be you. It's going to be epic. It's going to be great. And they've been talking about this, and they've been thinking about it. And it's like, oh, wow. And, uh, uh, well, you know, what, what, what do you think? Um, do, you, do you think, how many, how many humans do you think will line up for, like, the, the unveiling, the pulling back of the stone? Ten, nine. Eight, you know, it's going to be awesome. H how many humans do you think will line up? A thousand? Another one's like, no, no, no. Ten thousand. It's like, no, no, no. I think they'll be lined up all the way to Jerusalem. I think the line will wrap around Jerusalem and go to Bethel. And the angel who never gets any lines is like, no. It's, the line's going to be forever long. Think about it. You've seen how these humans will line up when they open a Chick-fil-A. 
imagine what they're going to do for the resurrection of the Son of God. That's just Jesus' chicken. This is like Jesus himself. Imagine. You've seen how they'll line up for an iPhone 6. Imagine, angels, it was a long time ago. Imagine what they're going to do for the Son of God coming out of the tomb. So they're ready. Ten, nine. And they're looking around. Crickets. I'm like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Nobody? Eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. I, I don't know. Roll it. Roll away. The, I guess roll away the stone and sit on it. I don't know what to tell you, right? Finally, at the crack of dawn, they see some women coming. And they're like, finally. Ooh, ooh, and they've got baskets. I bet the baskets are like breakfast. I bet they've made some of Jesus' favorite breakfast foods. Because saving the world is, works up an appetite. And so they're going to feed the risen Lord Jesus. It's great. No, there's no food in their baskets. Well, probably they've got like a flower crown to crown him Lord of all. Because they know he's the risen Lord. No. Well, what have they got in the baskets? Oh, no. No, they didn't. No. Yes. No. No. You, they brought burial spices. Burial spices? As if he's still in the tomb? Oh, I got some stuff I want to say to them. Uh-uh. No speaking parts. I'll handle this. And the angel mildly rebukes, why do you seek the living among the dead? And they're like, well, because when people die, they stay dead. But then, verse 7, uh, excuse me, verse, the rest of verse 6, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee. The, from the women's perspective, it's like, yeah, but, you know, he was dead. We saw him dead, so he's got to be dead. And they're like, no, 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 no. God said something. And when God says something, it trumps your reality. It trumps your existence. In fact, God saying something is why there is a reality. It's not like God always seems to do what he says he does. It's like what he says makes reality happen. Go back to the very first uh, chapter in the Bible. God spoke, let there be light, and light was like, okay. And suddenly there was light. Why? God's saying it makes the reality. It's not like God always follows through on his word. God's word is why there is anything at all. And so the angels know all this. And so they're like, look at verse 7. They quote to him what Jesus said, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men. Circle that word must in your mind. Some translations say necessary. It was necessary. That word must controls all three things. The Son of Man must be delivered in the hands of sinful man. He must be crucified. And he must on the third day rise. He must be delivered into the hands of sinful man. Do you know why? Do you know why? Because you. He had to be delivered because of you and me. You were in sin's grasp. You were held in sin. You were held in the cold, clammy clutches of the evil one. And you were a prisoner to sin. You were a hostage to sin. And this is the ultimate hostage exchange. Jesus said, take me instead so that you could go free. Do you understand that? He was a substitutionary sacrifice. It was his life for yours. You were held captive by sin. When you and I were in sin, we were, we were captive. We had rebelled against God. That's cosmic treason. Every sin is cosmic treason. And had joined forces with all those opposed to God. With all that evil opposed to God, we had joined forces, turned our backs on God. And then when we decided, ooh, I don't want to be in sin anymore. And, and our eternity is going to be hell. I don't want to go to hell anymore. We realized we were powerless to leave. You can come in, but you can't go out. You are held as a prisoner to sin. And so Jesus offered himself to be delivered over so that you could be set free substitutionary. 
And then it says he must be delivered over. Why? It's the only way. And he must be, what? Crucified. The sinless, spotless Lamb of God was the perfect offering that could bear the wrath of God. So it was a substitutionary sacrifice, but it was also an atoning sacrifice. The cross of Jesus Christ. Have you ever heard the old preacher say, if you were the only person on earth, if you were the only person on the whole earth, God loves you so much that even if you were the only person on earth, God would still, Jesus would still come and die for you. God would send his only begotten son for you to die on the cross for you if you're the only person on earth. Now, you ever heard that? I've heard that. It's absolutely true, and I praise God for that. But um, they leave out the obvious corollary to that. And the obvious corollary is true, but it's not very, like, fun to think about. The obvious corollary to that truth is this. Look, if you were the only person on the planet, there would still be so much sin God had to himself come and send Jesus and die for you. That's how much sin there is in you. Because it's easy to be like, oh no, God had to come and save all these sinners. Nope, look around. You're the only one on the planet. It's you. All right? And if you were the only one on the planet, it would require the, nothing less than the death of the Son of God. But he loves you so much, he would. Be crucified. And now my favorite one. He must be delivered in the hands of sinful man. He must be crucified. And he must on the third day rise again. He must. Easter was never in doubt. It had to happen. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. But Jesus died as the sinless Lamb of God. And so death couldn't hold him. According to Acts chapter 2, verse 24, when Peter's preaching this, he says, almost like the, the pangs, he, God freed Jesus from the pangs of death, like the labor pangs of death. Why? For, according to the scripture, for, Acts 2, 24, for it was impossible for death to keep its hold on Jesus. It was impossible. It was uh, I've, I've, I've asked people this week, you know, help me define miracle. And most people say this, a miracle is when God does the impossible. But that's my point. When Jesus went into the grave, it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. It could not keep Jesus down. He could not be kept in the grave. The miracle would have been if he'd stayed in the grave. Technically, it's not a miracle on the third day for God to raise Jesus from the dead. On the third day, that was just Jesus being Jesus. He's the king of the universe. He's the Messiah. He has all power in his hand. It was impossible for death to keep his hold on him. Why? He's the Messiah. And God's word says Messiah will not die, will not, will not perish. It's going to rise. It was impossible for death to keep his hold on him. I had to laugh out loud. I was in my study and I read this line from an old commentary. This is an old German commentary. Uh, but I just say that to sound smart. I can't speak German. Um, uh, I w it was translated into English, and sometimes these old-timers had a way with words. And I was this, was this was all dawning on me that technically the impossibility would have been for Jesus to stay in the grave, the most logical possible thing in the world. If he's the king of the universe, the most logical thing in the world is that he comes back from the grave. This old German commentary says this, the abyss can no more hold the Redeemer than a pregnant woman can hold the child in her body. <laughs> Isn't that great? There's death and hell trying to hold Jesus in the grave. 
Ain't gonna happen. <laughs> Under severe labor pains, the w- <laughs> this is this is, this is what made me laugh. Under severe labor pains, the womb of the underworld must release the Redeemer. <laughs> it's a boy. He's alive. Death couldn't keep him. Death couldn't hold him. Why? He's the king of the universe. He's the Messiah. Acts 2.24, it was impossible. He must on the third day rise. Well, then it all clicked. Then it made sense. They remembered his words. Brandon's going to come and lead us in a time of response. I want you to hear this. He was the king of kings, right? He was the Messiah. And that means, because all power was in his hand, that means it was impossible for death to keep his hold on it. That means for everyone who is in Messiah, For everyone who is in Christ, stay with me now. For everyone who is in Christ, when you die, it will be impossible for death to keep its hold on you. That at the end of your life, you will be laid in a grave. And if you are in Christ, follow me now. If you are in Christ, the minute, I mean the second you die, to be absent from the body, present with the Lord, your soul goes to be with Jesus paradise but the best is yet to come there with Jesus with those that have gone on before that have died in the Lord wonderful wonderful but that's not everything I like to tell people heaven's great but it's not the end of the world why that's heaven man being with Jesus is heaven oh but he's got something prepared he is preparing the new heaven new earth and that means there will come a day I don't know when you don't know when Nobody knows when. But there's coming a day when Jesus Christ, that trumpet's going to blow. He is going to split the sky. And when he does, remember your body in the grave? That body is going to come forth up out of the grave in a physical resurrection. Bury me facing east because I want to see what this looks like when it happens. Don't bury me facing west because then I have to be like, oh. You bury me facing east. Or if I'm blown apart at sea, all my parts are going to be found and recreated. I don't care how it happens. Here's what I know. He's going to take that and watch this. Watch this. He's going to glorify it. We get a little foretaste. We get a sample of what it might look like when we look at the resurrected body of Jesus. He's going to glorify it. He's going to make it suitable for exploring all that is to be explored in the new heaven, new earth for all eternity. Why? Because I am in Christ. And now we've come full circle. That is the headline. Now, not only am I not afraid to die, now all the pleasures of this life are shot through with meaning. Now, guys, I can actually enjoy my lunch today because it's not my last meal. I've got my eyes on another meal. And I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to enjoy it for what it is, but I don't have to cling to it because when you cling to it and you hoard it, you ruin it. That's how it is. No, all these joys can just be signposts from glory to glory, reminding me of what's coming. I can use money, but not be controlled by money. I can enjoy nice things and be grateful for them, but I can always share them. And when suffering comes, I can say, even my bad's going to turn out for good. My good things are only going to get better. And oh, the best is yet to come. Only the resurrection, only the resurrection promises not only consolation for the sufferings of this life, but restoration. Every, even religions that are like, oh yeah, you might be like resurrected in some weird reincarnated form, and that's consolation for your suffering. The Christian view of the resurrection is, 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 is restoration. You not only get a body, 
You not only get your body back, y'all, you get the body you always wanted. See? You not only get your life back, you get the life you always wanted. So that when you, when you get to new heaven, new earth, you realize we, because of Jesus, I didn't miss out on a thing. I know there are people that are single that are, because of their Christian convictions, because they're trying to live their life in a way that aligns with the Bible, they're never going to get married. And they're, for, 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 for various reasons, it's so that if they really want to get married, they're going to grieve that. And they're going to say, well, I missed out on it. The Christian resurrection says, no, you didn't. There's coming a marriage, a real marriage. One that transforms and heightens all visions of marriage. And it's a physical bodily resurrection. Or those that are in bad marriages that say, well, I wish we had that one. I, I guess we missed out on having that marital bliss. No, in the resurrection, you'll have millions and millions of years to understand. You didn't miss out on a thing. Every, well, to those who've had suffering, every tear wiped away. Every suffering uh, done away with forever and ever. So that you will say, we, we didn't miss out on a thing. So now not only am I not afraid to die, but like today is shot through with glory and meaning. And I can say tomorrow morning, good morning. See, because of Jesus. It's all because of Jesus. Verse 9 says, they told everybody, and I don't blame them. Returning from the tomb, they told all these things, the 11 and the rest. Hey, if a dead Nazarene Jew got up and walked out of the grave, that is the most cataclysmic event in all human history. That should change the headline of everybody's life. There should literally be groups of people throughout the world that gather, like, I don't know, once a week, say on Sunday, to celebrate this news. And that's what we'll do. Every single week, celebrate this news that he is alive. I want to pray for you. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? If you're here and you're not yet a believer, I'm praying that today would be the day of your salvation. I'm going to give this invitation. There'll be a pastor here to receive any who come. I, 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 don't go another day lost, seeking the living among the dead. Receive him. If you're here and you're a believer, I, I, I pray that you would find fresh faith and you would remember his words like those women did in verse 8. You'd remember his words. You'd say, I always knew this to be true, but I love hearing the gospel story and it gives me fresh faith and fresh hope for today, strength for tomorrow. If you're going through a hard time, let it give you that encouragement you need. Heavenly Father, do what only you can do. You who are the living Lord, you who are here in our midst, and I know there are those that feel lost and like they're searching for you. Teach them today that their search is ended because you are in fact on the loose and looking for them. Save them. And rejuvenate and refresh those who are believers this Easter Sunday morning. Grant us fresh faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.